This episode of Triloquy is brought to you by Roundtable, your hub for live and on-demand digital courses in music, literature, the arts, and more. Triloquy listeners are invited to a world-class music education, including diving deeper into music theory, celebrating Nina Simone and studying Schumann and Chopin with renowned expert Louis Rosen. Go to roundtable.org music and use the code LOKI20 for 20% off on any course, especially for Triloquy listeners. Karuna, and this is Triloquy. Thanks so much for tuning in. Shout out to the returning listeners. Couldn't do this show without you and your very generous support. And shout out to the new listeners. Triloquy is a podcast that's built to decolonize the traditional Western notion of classical music. Each week, I unpack a topic or a news story from the field toward that goal of expanding dialogues around so-called classical music. I share a recent conversation with folks from the arts who are decolonizing in their own ways, and I offer a weekly triloquy where I throw a bit of my own life into the mix. For more information about triloquy, to catch past opuses, and to donate, go over to triloquy.org, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y dot O-R-G. Apologies in advance for this being a little late. I've been under the weather this week. As the seasons change, I always tend to catch a little bit of a bug, so I wanted to make sure I was as uncongested as I could be before I came on here to the mic, still feeling it a little bit. So sorry if you're not getting the the uh, voice that you're used to uh, with my plugged nose here, but uh, really appreciate your uh, tuning in nonetheless. Uh, the one and only Black Bach joins me this week. More on him and his incredible work in a bit. In this week's Triloquy, I'm going to talk money and how that relates to concert experiences, uh, at least as they apply to me. Uh, but to get us started this week, I have two quick things. First, I I want to reiterate what I was saying last week in the triloquy. At this point, we've all seen to some degree the tragedies that are happening in the Middle East. As a matter of fact, shortly after I recorded last week's opus, uh, Dell and I took a walk down Broadway just to get some air, and we stumbled upon a protest where you had people spewing the most harmful things at each other, people who don't even know each other spewing these harmful, harmful things. Um, and in the spirit of oneness and not picking sides, as I was getting into last week, I won't say who was saying what, um, but I do hope that we can all continue to see the humanity and the inhumanity that's being put forward in these tragic events. I really appreciated uh, what Mark Lamont Hill brought to the Breakfast Club a few days ago. So if you want a black perspective on this, um, be sure to check that out. Um, this isn't a new issue at all. You know, all of your favorite blacktivists, whether it's Malcolm X or Angela Davis, James Baldwin, all of these people have a documented track record of what they believe, what the issue was in the Middle East and what peace can look like. So this isn't something that we can just brush off. This is something that fully involves anti-racism, conversations of uh, anti-blackness, what it looks like for a peaceful future. None of these things are separated. It's all one. So let's all try to learn as much as we can and remember that leaning into the narrative of good guys and bad guys isn't helping anyone, especially as that narrative relates to American foreign policy and what we've historically been trained to think about this situation, okay? I'm sending my prayers and advocacy for peace to all involved. That's number one. Thing number two, I want to shout out Suzanne Bona, 
uh, who hosts a syndicated show called Sunday Baroque with an accompanying podcast. Uh, I had the pleasure of recording a guest spot on that podcast earlier this week that'll uh, be out later this month. I was surprised to uh, get an invitation to a Baroque themed show because, you know, as y'all understand, um, I believe that we spend way too much time perpetuating the Eurocentric histories and standards of so-called classical music. But we had a really great conversation that I can't wait for y'all to hear. Um, I'm thinking about this because I was at uh, my friend's Jonathan's house. Shout out to Jonathan. Uh, and he had a black remix of Handel's Messiah playing, probably one of the most famous uh, Baroque uh, compositions you know, in the world. Um, I'm sure y'all have been familiar with uh, this. Uh, I think they call it a soulful celebration. Maybe y'all have been familiar uh, with this sort of remix on the Messiah for a long time, but somehow that never made it uh, to me. So in case you don't know, basically it's the entire Messiah with each movement presented through a different black aesthetic, whether it be um, Afro beats or R&B, soul, jazz. There are even a, a few rap reimaginations in there. Uh, it came up in my uh, Sunday Baroque interview that Handel was a beneficiary of the uh, slave trade as an investor. I've been very outspoken on that. Um, and being exposed to this black version of his most famous piece has me thinking about what some of the stepping stones of the evolution of classical music can be. Uh, a part of me thinks music like this is only serving the status quo in a different way, putting a black face on white supremacy culture and classical music, you know, we're still talking about Handel and centering a European composition when there are far more pieces that could be celebrated instead. But, you know, on the other hand, it is some clever music <laughs> to a degree and something that's nice to listen to, at least in the background. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of it here to uh, let you think about whether or not presenting the music of a slaver in a black context is a step forward or a step in the same direction that we've been going. Uh, this one's called For Unto Us a Child is born again from a soulful celebration on Handel's Messiah. somewhere doing flips in his grave child but <laughs> anyway as we approach the holiday season just remember that we have original works by black composers that can celebrate christmas or kwanzaa or whatever hanukkah i'm sure whatever you need i celebrate this soulful celebration and i point out that there's so much more that we can platform toward this goal of breaking down the status quo of classical music i suppose both things can be true so we're gonna uh stick to that and uh flip over to uh, another sort of uh, relation to the Baroque in my conversation with uh, Black Bach. Of course, you know, you can't uh, help but to hear the name Bach 
in uh, his name. Uh, but, you know, Blackbok, B-L-K-B-O-K, is a different sort of flip on that. I'll read a little bit uh, from his website uh, that explains a bit. It says, born and raised in Detroit's inner city, Blackbok, born Charles Wilson III, grew up in a music-filled house. And by the time he was eight, Blackbok was an acclaimed piano prodigy, winning statewide accolades and college-level competitions. When it came to music, most of the kids he grew up with pursued hip-hop, adopting rap names. However, it's no coincidence that Charles chose the name Blackbok, which echoes that of one of the greatest pianists and composers of all time. The tag is also an apt reflection of the elements that have contributed to the artist's identity and symbolizes his colorful journey from pop and hip-hop culture to his critically acclaimed neoclassical debut album Black Book and various mixtape projects and collaborations. So we talk about his life, uh, we talk about his latest album that's called Nine, and uh, we talk about his thoughts on the uh, contemporary and future of this uh, little genre of so-called classical music. So to get us into the chat, here's a sample from the album Nine, a tune here called What Is Truth? Hope you enjoy this music and hope you enjoy my conversation with the one and only Black Box. neoclassical just means new it just means a, a new way of doing things that we've been doing for a very long time mm -hmm. um as far as being a renegade i think that you know um it's this is something that for me is very authentic to who i am so i know that in many ways that's not authentic to what the culture classical culture has been mm -hmm. so for me the renegade is kicking down the door and saying i'm going to be who i am and no one's going to stop me. So in what ways do you bring together that old or that so-called traditional and the new? Um, I think the music is just kind of speaks in the tradition, but um, I think the way it's presented and the topics themselves are what's new. I mean, the thing about it is that we have been playing the same pieces for centuries now, mm -hmm. you know, and I think that this is the time where we need to start creating stories that are uh, reflective of the times that we live in. Yeah, yeah. And when I think about, you know, the times that we live in, there are so many institutions out there, whether it's classical radio stations, conservatories, orchestras, talking about um, coming to the 21st century through diversity, through DEI, but, you know, through that 
sort of same lens. It's like orchestras want to see black people playing Brahms and that's their version of right. moving, moving things forward. Is that right. something that you even come into contact with in, in your career? The, the whole DEI talk in classical music? Um, I would, I would say no, I, I don't think it's been a, a topic in what I've been doing so far. Um, I do believe in it. I think that it's, uh, I think there should be representation in, uh, more orchestras. I mean, there's a statistic that says, you know, 1.9% of musicians are of color in America, in, in orchestras in America. So mm -hmm. I do believe that there, um, shows that, you know, the data shows that there is a need yeah. So um, if orchestras can provide that, I am all for it. I am rah, rah, rah. Go get it. Well, we'll circle back to orchestras in a bit, but I want to get into some of uh, who you are and your history. Okay. Uh, I wonder if you can talk about growing up in Detroit. You know, I lived in, I played with the Detroit <laughs> Symphony right out of grad school for a couple of years and yeah. I fell in love with the yeah. symphony. Do you have the, the same love for the D? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's my home. It's, it's one of the coolest places to be. I honestly don't think there was a better place to grow up and be doing music and art. Mm -hmm. I think Detroit has such a diversity. It has such a cultural uh, landscape there. Like it's so cool to grow up there. There's so many musicians from so many different walks of life. And I mean, even for me as a kid, I took classical lessons, but then, you know, after about age 16 or so, I went and started playing jazz. So I got familiar with the jazz community in Detroit, which is extremely thick. Like the the substance of the jazz community is so thick and it's amazing. I mean, it's like one big happy family. Um, and then, of course, being, you know, a kid from the West Side, like everything was rap and hip hop growing up. So, mm -hmm. you know, the diversity is so crazy there. Um, and I think it's one of the best places to have grown up. Wow, jazz and classical. And is this through just public school systems or were you able to get into something else? Okay, so my story is very interesting because it started in public school systems. But then, so for instance, my middle school band teacher knew uh, Teddy Harris, who was a Motown legend. And she said, you know what, you should take lessons with him. So it kind of started in the school. Yeah. But I think this, the, my, um, all my music teachers in school saw that there was potential for more. And they kind of handed me off to the professionals that they knew. So I'm um, in the rough, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, they wanted me to go to the next level and level up. So uh, they handed me off to real pros. So how did piano happen? Oh, mom forced that. That was, <laughs> <laughs> I had no choice in that one. So my sister and I both are pianists. Um, mom's rule was you play until you're 18. Once you're 18, you're an adult and you can make a decision and do whatever you want. Mm. Me, I fell in love with the piano. I kept playing. My sister is now a PhD in physics. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah. So I wonder how the uh, the band training and the, and that sort of thing impacted what you were already being forced to do at the piano. Yeah, it. I mean, it totally impacted it. I mean, in school, I was on the drum line and oh. play percussion, classical percussion in school. So a lot of the uh, percussiveness about what I'm doing now, that stuff kind of plays into what I'm doing now. I'm seeing now that, you know, those same rudiments and things that I was playing with drumsticks are now the same things that I'm playing on the piano. I always say the piano is uh, not two hands, but 10 little drumsticks. Mm, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. So did you always have ideas of being a musician? Yeah. I mean, I come from a mu musical family. Uh, family was all, you know, entertainers and musicians. So I've always, music was all, it's, it's always been here. Nice, nice. Yeah. You, you were talking a, a few minutes ago about being from the West Side, where 
uh, hip hop was sort of the uh, the the default. Yeah, I, I guess I'll ask first, what's your relationship with hip hop now, considering that so much of your story is not going down the rap track, you know, even though that mm -hmm. I'm sure there's some some cross pollination of that in your work now? Yeah, absolutely. Like my relationship is still as strong as ever. You know, like I, I believe that hip hop and rap speak to uh, the stories, the stories that you get from hip hop and rap really uh, kind of tailor for me what it is I want to express or what it is I want to say. Um, the artists that I listen to are all very insightful artists. And, and I've listened to some stuff that's kind of like, you know, borderline, but that stuff also speaks in a way. You know, there is a demographic for it. And it's interesting to understand the demographic that's listening to uh, a certain genre of music. I almost hate to ask this question, but I have to. I mean, okay. how, how much of, uh, in general, I won't even center this on you, but in general, what do you think about this idea of the so-called classical music being, especially for young people, what's acceptable and celebrated, you know, yes, definitely go pursue that. But if it's a 13 year old that's trying to be a rapper, he doesn't mm -hmm. always get the same support. Right. Um, I think he gets a different type of support. Hmm. I think he gets a, a more urban support, like his homies, his friends, his parents, they may say, yeah, go rap, go. I mean, I, I have nieces and nephews who, you know, oh, Uncle Chuck, I want to do music. So they go and, 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 you know, their family support them in that, you know? So I think the, the support is very equal. Mm -hmm. um, it's just in a different form and in a different package. So we got these two communities that sort of support their folks in different ways. Right. I would imagine that many of your performances to a degree is those communities coming together, at least for a few hours. Absolutely. And that's what I love about what we're doing is we're bringing those two communities together. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Do you make it to any, uh, you, you know, your name is Black Bach uh, and mm -hmm. I'll have you speak to that in a minute, but uh, do you play any Bach? Do you go through some etudes in the morning or anything? You know what? I did that stuff when I was studying as a kid and now I look at it and go, <laughs> not because you know um i still do a lot of you know of course with technique and training and stuff like that we still do all of that stuff but um i don't think i'm necessarily always pursuing playing bach because my name is black bach i don't think that's really the thing i think my thing for having the name black bach is to pave a new path sure well what what parts of the so-called uh traditional sort of training uh still plays a role. I mean, do you go through your scales these days? What, what yeah. rudiments and whatever? Yeah. Still do all the rudiments, uh, rudimentary stuff. The scales, arpeggios, you know, the Hannon, I still do all of that stuff to, uh, keep my chops together, um, and to learn new things. So, you know, I'm always looking to learn new exercises and new ways of training my hands. And, um, yeah, so all that stuff still comes into play. That's just part of, you know, uh, mastering the instrument. So it seems like to a degree, even though you don't spend too much time with Bach these days, mm -hmm. you want, from my perspective, it seems like you want folks to understand the significance of Bach. I mean, that, you know, that story of, uh, you know, how important he is, is a part of uh, a lot of the press materials I've seen about you. Is, is it important for you to have people listening to you understand that connection, even though you aren't really digging into the Bach these days? Um. I, I don't think it's it's that important to, to understand the connection. I think that Bach had his time. He was a renegade for his time. So I think that's where we do 
uh, share something in common is that we are both, uh, to me, disruptors. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's about as far as it goes. It's, it's just understanding that, you know, this guy kind of changed the game. And um, I hope that that's the path that I'm paving now. Well, how about you talk a little bit about the development of the name Black Bach? I mean, it's a, a particular spelling. We talk in all caps. Get, mm-hmm. Take us on the journey. Okay. So um, it's a play. First, it's a hip hop name. It's definitely a rapper name. So that was the first thing I wanted to do was kind of, you know, reach into my roots and not have, you know, a quote unquote classical name, but just mm-hmm. something that represents me in a way that's really cool. Um the second part of it, be okay, is something that my father always always says, which is everything will be okay, but you got to be okay with everything. Wow. So the name is very much a message to Black culture is that we will be okay. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah. I, never, I never physically said be okay, but that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, what are some of the, uh, you know, so far in your career, what do you consider some of your most notable or memorable uh, performances or collaborations? Oh, wow. Uh, I think some of a really cool collaboration was with Lawrence Brownlee, who's oh, yeah. an absolutely amazing vocalist. Like he is a powerhouse. And just to be able to do a mixtape, we did a Christmas mixtape together uh, called Angels Watching Over Me. Um and I think a lot of, I always think of this, like my greatest collaborations are yet to come. I feel like this is the beginning of something and these new collaborations are, are going to happen. Um, notable performances. I think, you know, being interviewed by Al Roker was <laughs> absolutely incredible. Yeah. Um, and being able to play a duet with an astronaut in space was uh, absolutely amazing. Uh, I did a duet with Commander Michael Lopez Alegria. Uh, he played my song stars. We did a duet of it while he was on the international space station. So that was pretty cool. I want to know more about this collaboration with Lawrence Brownlee. That's, that's one of the last people I would have expected you to talk about. Is it a jazz, a Christmas jazz or what is it? No, it's a Christmas neoclassical. It's him kind of doing his thing and me doing my thing. Um, it's somewhat soul, but it's somewhat opera, but it's somewhat, you know, it's, it's Christmas. So it's just a mixture of, of many moods and many expressions. Um, and it was so cool to come together with him and we knocked it out in a day. And he, he's such, he's like a big bro to me. I love Lawrence. I don't typically listen to any of that music before Thanksgiving, but I might have to break the rule now. Cause you got me. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really good album. Okay, great, great. Well, I did hear, uh, you know, through the grapevine that you have also crossed paths with folks like Rihanna and Justin Timberlake. Uh, yeah. Yeah, had a whole career of of touring with, uh, my first tour was with Justin Timberlake. Um, I've also been on the road with Backstreet Boys and Rihanna and John Mayer and music director for Demi Lovato. So I had a whole life of touring with uh, pop music, m- pop musicians before I even started or even thought about Black Box. So um, this is kind of like the second iteration of my career. And the and your trajectory toward that type of work that happened through music school or or some just connections, just connections. Okay, just you know, I'm always one of those type of people where I'm I'll talk to anyone, especially if you do music. We can have a whole conversation. I've always been that type of person. So I just remember the NSYNC band was uh, doing a rehearsal next door to us at Epcot Center when I lived in Florida. And I kind of just bursted in the room. Hey, y'all, <laughs> this is me. And I met the musical director, Kevin Antunes, 
And we ended up being uh, really good friends. And I worked with him for many years on many tours. It must have been a different time because I feel like if I just go into one of Beyonce's rehearsals, somebody going to tackle me. Yeah, <laughs> you just got to choose the right. You got to choose the right moment. That's what it is. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, I do want to talk a little bit um, about some of your uh, recording that you've done. Uh, you have a, a new album uh, and, yeah. uh, and you also have your previous album, Black Book. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder if you could speak to um, the difference in approach, if any, uh, performing live, preparing for a live performance versus going in the studio and, and recording something. Oh, wow. There is a definite difference. Um, recording in the studio is... It's very much the creative process. So my creative brain is on and it's uh, writing things that um, speak to me and being present and bringing, being in the moment, as opposed to preparing for a tour where now I'm sitting down and I'm doing all the, you know, the work, mm. you know, figuring out fingerings and, and dynamics and all of the, the work that goes into being a concert pianist. So it's very much a different mindset, but nonetheless work both are equally just you know doing the work so why did you choose to uh, spend a little bit of time off the road to record black book your, your first album well black book <laughs> black book actually happened as an experiment hmm. it was not intentional there was when i set out to do you know i had no idea what i was getting into when i started it i remember i got a call from my publisher and he said you should do a piano album and I literally asked him, you know, uh, said, I don't know what the hell you're talking about, dude. So I hadn't discovered Black Bach yet. So it was a matter of sitting down for 121 consecutive days. Hmm. I wrote music and just discovering what my voice is. I had never asked that question. You know, I had been, I know what Justin Timberlake's voice is. I know what Rihanna's voice is. I know what all these people that I've worked with, but I've never taken the time to sit down and say what. If I was to express myself, what does it sound like? Just so happens that during 121 days, I found out mm -hmm. and the experiment worked. So um, Black Book was just like the process of not really knowing. Again, like for me, writing is journey based and not destination based. So when you talk about finding your own voice, I wonder if you can speak more to that. What did you find? What did you discover about yourself? Oh man, I discovered neoclassical. I discovered that, you know, for a large percentage of my life, the larger percentage of my life, I was a classical player. But then I also discovered that, you know, I love pop music and I love hip hop and I've played in rock bands and all these other pieces and elements of who I am. And those elements and pieces got put into the formation of Black Book. So with Black Book being an experiment, you know, you're finding yourself. How is that different from Nine, your new album? Oh, yeah. Nine is kind of like, I, I, I know what I'm doing now, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so it's just a little bit different in that way, um, which is great. But again, it's the same process where it's, I'm going to put one foot in front of the next foot in front of the next foot, and we're going to see where this goes and what stories come to me and should be told at this time. So it's not, again, I had no destination. I, I didn't know what I was going to make. I just decided to sit down and take the time to make something. And, you know, there's so many um, stories from Black history, from Black past that can be used as the fuel, as the inspiration for, the, for new works. Why the Little Rock Nine? What, what centered that for you on this project? 
I thought their story needed to have a little bit of light put onto it. Mm. You know, these we we can sit here and we can talk about the Little Rock Nine, but the thing we have to understand is that these were children. Mm-hmm. They were 15 and 16 years old. They were not grown adults going against the system. And in most cases, they weren't even aware that they were going against the system in that way. I had the amazing opportunity to sit with Miss Elizabeth Eckford mm-hmm. and have an amazing conversation, a life-changing conversation with her. And the one thing that she said to me was, you know, I just wanted to go to college. My grandfather had convinced me that I was going to go to college and I knew the only way I could go to college was if I had went to Central High School. Mm-hmm. So she was just searching for a higher education. It wasn't like she was like, you know, power to the people. I'm going to go stand up against this mob. You know, so I just felt like they just needed a little bit of light to shine upon this, uh, upon what they did. And also what they did was integrate. They brought people together, you know, in a very, very uh, meaningful way. They brought people together. And now, you know, you go to, you, you go and sit at the school and your kids are coming out and there's kids of all different race, colors, and creeds yeah. because of the Little Rock Nine. I remember the first time I went over uh, to Little Rock to just go on those grounds. The yeah. biggest thing that I remember was just how massive the school looked and yeah. to me as an adult. So again, yeah. as children, this is some institution that right. people are just fighting to right. keep you out of. I, I, I agree with you. There's so much more light that needs to uh, to be shined on that story. Yeah, absolutely. One of the um, biggest conversations that I engage with a lot of Black classical artists in general um, is this expectation of activism and even Black activism. You know, some folks just want to be a musician, you know, and shout mm-hmm. out to all of the activists, but I'm not here for that. Others mm-hmm. kind of see it as a duty, a, a necessity. I feel like, you know, Nina Simone would be on that side of the argument right. and folks like her. I wonder where you fall on that spectrum. Do you, do you feel an obligation toward activism as a black artist? I don't know if it's necessarily activism is the word. Hmm. I think that I'm just telling stories. I'm just telling the truth. And I think the truth just needs to be told. This is what happened back then. And this is the effects of it. You know, as some of the pieces on nine uh, reflect, like there's a piece called Heat Island. Most people don't know what an urban heat island is. It's when, you know, because of systemic oppression and redlining, the the hood was five to 10 degrees hotter than the suburbs because of the tree canopy. Mm-hmm. Therefore, these poor people had higher electric bills. They had more outages and they had more deaths. People died because we were redlined. And I just think that's something that everyone should know. I don't think it's like, you know, like again, power to the people. I think it's just, hey, this is a piece of knowledge that I think I, everyone should know that this happened. So I don't think it's necessarily activism. Mm-hmm. I think it's more just truth. There's so many people who just never came upon stories like that in their schooling, folks with masters and doctorates, I'm sure, who never came to that. How did you come to it? Was being in Detroit, a black city like Detroit, just a means for learning more about black history for you? Absolutely. I look at my neighborhood. I lived in a red line neighborhood, Hmm. you know, so it's my reality that I'm telling, you know, the truth of my reality. Um, It's not necessarily like I'm, you know, digging through crates, searching for information. It's just that on the journey of writing an album, this information is kind of just making its way to me. 
you know, like I said, it's a spiritual path for me. It's something that I'm just walking forward and whatever the universe or God or whatever decides to deliver to me is what I deliver to the people. Mm, beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. Now, it isn't just the Little Rock Nine that I understand inspired the title of this album. I've also read a little bit about Angel Number Nine. I wonder if you yeah. can speak to that a little bit. Yeah, Angel Number Nine is you know universal togetherness. Like you know, to me, that's what I believe the world needs most mm-hmm. is that we see each other and that we understand each other. I think there's a lot of conversations that not have not been had. I think this is uh, this album is its intent is to set the table for those conversations. So, you know, using the the number nine, I think is uh, just a show again of how people we can come together as one, you know, one unit, one unity, one community. What about Divine Nine? Is, is yeah. there a shout out to that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it could be a shout out to Divine Nine. Shout out to Divine Nine. I mean, I did attend a, a, a HBCU. So, you know, again, hats off to them. Um, yeah. Which, which HBCU, if I can ask? Uh, Bethune-Cookman. Oh, wow. That must have been something. Yeah. There, there, there's some, you know, something I uh, talk about with people who went to HBCUs all the time is that, you know, so I played the bassoon um, and okay. that it was just not even in my thought pattern to consider an HBCU. Not not that I was avoiding it or anything. You know, I watched, um, what was the show? A Different World and everything, mm-hmm. you know, so I yeah. was aware, but I just never even made the connection of my place at an HBCU. Right. Was, it, was it intentional for you? <laughs> no, it was not intentional. It huh. was, I'm getting in trouble and I need to go away. So, and I was, you know, in Detroit, you know, headed down a wrong path. And the other option was to go to Bethune-Cookman. So I just, I literally hopped on a Greyhound bus and went to Florida and decided, you know, this is uh, the better path. Was the Florida that you experienced uh, comparable to the Florida that I understand exists today, that many people understand exists today? Same Florida. Wow. Same Florida, just in a different form, in a different in a different uh packaging hmm. but very much the same energy um so it's i mean things have changed some things are better some things are worse some things are exactly the same so you know it's just, you know it just kind of is what it is right now do your tour spots um you know depend on your experience or you know social political contexts and uh ecosystems or do you just go anywhere and everywhere i go anywhere and everywhere okay I, I think this music is for everyone. And I think if, if I can play this music and perform this music for as many people as possible, that is my perfect world. You know, I gotta, <laughs> I gotta ask you another tough one or one that I consider a little tough. Mm-hmm. You know, I appreciate mm-hmm. this uh, idea of uh, universality and, you know, all, I'm, I'm a, I'm a Nietzsche and Buddhist. So, you know, mm-hmm. that I, I spent a lot of time thinking about that. I also mm-hmm. acknowledge that there are so many of our people who think that there need to continue to be some black specific dialogues towards some mm-hmm. black specific outcomes. If we want to talk about reparations and, you know, the, the whole black love movement and, and all of that stuff, how, I wonder how you balance, you know, universal love, against you know so many people who feel like black folks still need to you know be black and be in our communities and and maintain in that way yeah i i mean i can't run from it i'm black you know like it's it's the conversation that i have because it's relevant to who i am 
So as well as being universal and, and seeing universal love, I also see black love and I see, you know, my people and the struggles that we we have. And part of this album and this project is to, you know, shine a light on some of those things, these issues that we have to overcome. I don't think that there's a separation of it. I think that all issues are our issues, you know, mm-hmm. be it whatever race or color you are, there's, I mean, shoot, there's issues for every race. So I think that, um, I think that we, uh, me being black helps me to, to address black issues, but it also helps me to see outside of the window and say, you know what, we all need to have some growing we should do. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way of putting that. Well, speaking of uh, non-separations, you know, you blur the lines of so many different industries, classical hip hop, you know, everything in between. I wonder what, uh, are your hopes as, as your career continues to develop, what are your hopes for these industries? I understand that you have, you know, your own professional goals, but what do you hope about the the ecosystem that a lot of your music lives in and thrives in? Um, again, I just love the fact that this new generation, they have, they have this wonderful thing that they do. They don't care. Mm-hmm. Like you could be purple with one eyeball in the middle of your head. If you're the homie, you're the homie. Yeah. And they love you. And I think that's the energy that my music and I think the ecosystem will eventually change into this very uh crossover, a lot of genre bl- bending and blending is gonna start happening because that's who we are. We're not very compartmentalized like that. We do, you know, I always look at myself and I say I'm I'm the ultimate anomaly. I'm a black kid from the west side of Detroit that plays classical music and is in love with NASCAR. <laughs> oh, NASCAR. <laughs> you know, so it's kind of like, uh, you know, most people look at me and they go, huh? And I'm like, but these, this is the type of world that we live in. We're not so single-minded. We're not just one thing, you know? And I believe that, you know, we should explore. This is about exploration. Life is about ex- exploration. So, um, the more we can do that, I think the more the mu- music industry will change uh, to be more about that exploration. How would you advise um, everyone from the lady down the street who teaches piano lessons to the piano professor at Curtis or Juilliard? You know, when we talk about exploration and expansion, what, what would be your guidance or words uh, to, to them for the sake of their students? Uh, I think my words would be for a minute, mm. forget that there is a tradition. Mm. We come from classical music is a culture of worshipers. We're composer worshipers. For just one second, if you can take that down and actually experience the music or the, the culture just as it is right now, I think that's the most important thing is to see what it is now as opposed to what it was in 1826. Mm-hmm. You know, those stories existed and lived back then. And they were very, you know, these are, we're talking about classical uh, composers. They were the rock stars of that day. But what about the rock stars of our day? Yeah. They're relevant too. Yeah. So let's take a minute to to listen and open our ears and our minds and our imaginations to everything. One of the things I do is I listen to everything. And I think that's uh, what I would say to anyone. Um, even the the lady down the street or someone at Curtis Institute is to, you know, let's open our ears and open our eyes and open our imaginations. 
So what about those students? Somewhere there's a pianist who is world-class, but she's so frustrated because her teacher is only talking to her about Shostakovich and Rachmaninoff. She wants to branch off. How can young people with aspirations that expand or, or, or that, uh, uh, I guess, go beyond the parameters of classical, what do they need to do? Where, where should they go? Oh, it's a good question. Um, I think it's in identifying the difference between who you are and what you do. Mm. I think what you do is study piano and who you are is completely different. And if you can merge those two, what you do and who you are, then I think you found the sweet spot. Beautiful. Beautiful. How can people uh, keep up with uh, where you're going on tour next? Check out your album and keep up with all your other things. Everything is at Black Box, spelled B-L-K-B-O-K. So my website, Instagram, YouTube, uh, Spotify, everything is uh, under my name, Black Box. You can just Google it and it's everything's there. Dope, dope. Yeah. Well, I got one more question. So I wanted to loop us all the way back around back to Detroit. So mm-hmm. let's say the, the DSO, you know, invites you to come play a concerto or do some sort of collaboration what are you going to put on the table? What 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 sort of what do your collaborations with world class orchestras look like, or what could they look like in your imagination? Very very good question, and it's something that I've been working on for the past couple months. So my cousin, my big cousin, his name is Dr. William Banfield, who's oh, yeah, also the composer. Yeah, wow. My big cousin. Yeah. So ah. Bill Banfield is uh, and I have been wanting to work together for years and years and years. I remember being a kid seeing him at the DSO. Um, but one of the things we're doing is we're working on orchestrations uh, now of my pieces. And I think what I would love to see is are those pieces performed, but in a different, uh, a different setting or a different environment. Um, definitely something a different way, some kind of different way. I think that there's more to explore as far as the orchestra and how things are presented, you know, even if the orchestra dresses in all black, I mean, even that we can change that. There are certain things, you know, in in certain ways, I think that my job is to take everything that we've known traditionally and turn it on its head and see what happens. Again, exploration. So uh, I think that would be the thing is to work with Bill and uh, play for the orchestra and just do some crazy weird stuff. tail in there of what is truth from black box latest album nine please be sure to check it out to purchase it stream and support the next leg of the piano repertoire as conceived by black box huge shout out to him and huge shout out to his entire team for making that interview possible all right so i want to close today by offering a financial update <laughs> for y'all when i moved here to uh, new york i knew that it would change my financial reality and i'm making it you know i'm i'm 
grateful and I'm filled with gratitude for everything I'm able to do and the existence I'm able to have here. You know, I'm, uh, but I'm certainly not living it up like I'm used to uh, doing so in uh, Minnesota. There's a recent study that says an annual salary of $100,000 here in New York is really the equivalent of about $36,000 anywhere else when you factor in cost of living and those sorts of things. Now, I'm sure all of y'all are making well more than $100,000 thousand dollars a year, probably two and three hundred thousand dollars a year. So I'm not talking to y'all, but I'm speaking for myself. I'm barely there <laughs> between all of the work and projects. I do work in seven days a week. I am barely, barely, barely there. Now think about what your life will look like at 36K as opposed to what you're bringing in now. Think about what a $50 concert ticket would look like for you at 36K. And they get way more expensive than that, especially when you talk about opera, but we're just going to say $50. I'm sure there are things that you would do and sacrifices that you would make to enjoy whatever you wanted to enjoy, um, but it wouldn't be an everyday thing, right? Let's do some quick math. Attending a concert for $50, you know, we're going to, again, averaging $50 uh, once a week, that comes out to $2,600 for the year. Now, when you add in travel, whether you have a car or use transit, maybe you want to grab a drink or God forbid dinner on your weekly night out to the arts, you've more than doubled that annual cost of culture to about $6,500 a year. Now, remember, you're only making 36, so you're already spending about a fifth of your income on the arts, and you haven't paid rent yet, you haven't eaten, you haven't done laundry, you haven't gotten your hair done, you haven't considered the emergency expenses, the utilities. It gets dicey, it gets sticky, and ultimately, it requires that you're more picky about the shows that you go to, right? That's what I want to get at right now. There are a lot of concerts happening, and I go to as many of them as my time allows. See, I have more money than time these days. That's a factor that we can talk about as well. Um, but I don't think everyone is considering this reality when they're putting shows together and, and programming these concerts. This is not a sub or any shade to anyone. I've thoroughly enjoyed everything I've experienced here in New York City show so far. Shout out to The Rhythm Method. Shout out to Samuel Torres. Shout out to Opera on Tap. Shout out to Blue Spruce. Uh, Shout out to Gateways and uh, Sphinx Virtuosi, who I'm seeing um, this upcoming weekend. It's all great stuff. But as inflation continues to inflate, people are going to have to make choices. Now, I'll pause to say that I think it's very dangerous to equate audience diversity to money because black people have coins. You know, we get our hair done. We go see Beyonce. We do what we got to do. We figure it out. But if I have to choose between hanging out in Harlem and supporting a local black vendor versus listening to someone perform the music of a dead white or black composer, for that matter, I'm going to choose the former. And what really gets under my skin is when I buy these concert tickets and I'm urged to offer a donation on top of the concert ticket that I'm buying when you're doing good to get my ticket purchased in the first place. Now, as I say all of this, I think to myself, maybe I'm just broke. Maybe I need to step up my game and go back to school and get a job as a banker or a lawyer so I don't have to think about these things in this way. But then you're going to be in my inbox asking me to be a donor to your organization, right? It just all feels unsustainable. Again, this is not me saying that I'm around here broke and can't afford to do anything I can. I, I feel like I am in such a privileged position that I have to think about people who aren't even in my position. So really, that's what I'm getting at. We're in the late stages of capitalism here. I think in my life, time, we'll see the collapse of our financial systems in some way. Does your vision of classical music have a place in that reality? Hip hop came from the dirt. 
from the from the Bronx, not too far from where I'm sitting right now. Spiritual's came from the bonds of slavery. Art can exist beyond the need for working class people to squeeze their wallets to keep it alive. It's just something that I don't think even the most well-meaning of classical institutions are considering right now. So what's my suggestion? Make it worth our time. Make it worth my time. If you want me to pay to uh, you to listen, uh, if you want me to pay you to listen uh, to a performance of something that I can watch for free on YouTube, you need to consider what it looks like to center a living composer with a new work. Consider how you can inspire dialogue that relates to modern society before asking me to enjoy yet another performance of a Beethoven symphony or an opera where I have to watch a woman get raped and murdered again and again and again as opera tends to do. Consider the house of cards that you're actually standing on before you proclaim the Eurocentric engagement of classical music as something that's objectively beneficial for all people and all audiences. That's bullshit and your donor list proves it. Thank you everyone for listening. <laughs> Thank you for uh, spending your money wisely and intentionally. There are a lot of artists and grassroots collectives out here that need your support more than classical music's big box stores do. Um, and I'll talk to you again next week. Love y'all. Cheers. Cheers.